So if I said uh, the following statement, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. His claims to be God are therefore false. The disciples were lying. You should ask me to resign my job. (laughs) It is, though, one of the most common objections to Christianity. Um, It's not a new objection. If, in fact, you read through the Gospels, you will find that that objection to Christianity arose almost immediately following the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus did not rise from the dead. His claim to be God is false. The disciples were lying. And that objection to Christianity, which arose almost immediately in the first century, has only gained popularity in the 2,000 years since. It doesn't take too much time in a conversation with someone who is not a believer in Jesus to at some point raise their concern and their objections to the fact that this is all a hoax. So I'm going to ask again, how should you respond to that? Certainly, if I'm the person saying that, then your response should be concern for the health of this church. But if it's someone who is a friend of yours who does not know Jesus, who you have been sharing with and they share that, how do you respond? I'm going to talk about two ways. Um, One of those ways we will talk more about than the other. The first way is to point to the claims of the Bible. Okay? Open up your Bible with them. Um, Point them to the the realities of what is recorded there, that Jesus did actually rise from the dead. Right? He did. And we can take them to the Scriptures and show them. In my experience, the response to that is my friend saying, of course that's what the Bible says, the lying disciples wrote it, right? So that's one way that you could respond. It's not a bad way. The Word of God is immensely powerful and alive. It accomplishes more than just ink on paper. Another way is to point to the witness of the disciples themselves. Not just what they said, but more importantly, how they lived. If their claims, if their claims of Christianity are built upon the deluded lies of a group of fanatics, then why were they willing to be ridiculed, beaten, tortured and executed? All for a story that they concocted, right? Because in my experience, liars are never willing to go down with the ship. They will to a certain degree, but eventually the risk versus reward starts to not run in their favour. So the real question, 
that I think we ought to be asking ourselves is, what was it that fueled the early disciples' bold lifestyle of gospel witness? Right, let me ask that question again. What was it that fueled the early disciples' bold lifestyle of gospel witness? And then is that same motivation, that same fuel available for us today as well? Or maybe a different way of asking the same question is what are the reasons we don't boldly and effectively live a lifestyle of gospel witness? So I'm going to see if we can get to the heart of both of those questions, which I think in essence, at least I hope they do, drive us towards some common conclusion. So the first, first part of what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning is what is the fuel for effective evangelism? Now, before we get too um, frightened there, let me quickly qualify the word I just used evangelism. I've been talking about effective gospel witness a moment ago, and now I just said effective evangelism. Uh, that single word, in my experience, most often provokes a very wide variety of reactions in a room full of Christians like we have here. Uh, when I say the word evangelism, some of you are feeling excited. <laughs> right? They feel excited by the word evangelism. Internally, they're saying, let's do it, right? Let's not talk about it. Let's get out there and do it. Some of you, when I say evangelism, it provokes a sense of fear. <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. All right? Some people, it provokes a sense of shame. I know I should do it, but I don't. For other people, it's uncertainty. How do I do it? Or concern. Should we be doing it at all? Who are we to tell other people what to believe? It provokes that one word, evangelism, a massive variety of emotions in a room full of Christians like we have today. But let me explain what I mean by the word evangelism. This is my definition. If you differ from me, that's okay. You'll get used to being wrong. No, that's right. <laughs> that's not true. If you differ from me, I would love to have a conversation with you to tell you why I'm right. Um, no. Let, let's just run with this as a working definition for evangelism. Evangelism is the deliberate presentation of good news, or the gospel, that's what the, the word gospel means, good news, the deliberate presentation of good news which both informs and demonstrates to people what God has done through Jesus Christ to restore our severed relationship with himself. It's long. That's what I do with definitions. 
Let me read it again. Evangelism is the deliberate presentation of good news which both informs and demonstrates to people what God has done through Jesus Christ to restore our severed relationship with himself. I would love to have time. Maybe we'll make time to to explore this further. I'd love to break this down further and explore it. Um, But in summary, I just want to highlight these key words, okay? And I'm going to highlight them on the screen for you. It is deliberate, all right? Evangelism is deliberate, which means it's not passive. I actually take great concern with the very common phrase which says, preach the gospel, if necessary, use words. It is necessary, always, all right? It's deliberate. Um, The second thing is, is it is presented, it is a presentation. It's not assumed. Right? We can't just live through life and then at the end of the day sort of say, well, I, I hope they pick something up. All right? It's deliberate and it's presented. That's what evangelism is. Um, its tone, the next thing I want to highlight, its tone is primarily that of good news. Right? Evangelism is good news. It's primarily about something that we should be excited about and that other people we should expect should be excited about as well. It's not primarily condemnation. Luke actually quoted the verses, right? He did not come in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. So it's primarily about good news. Uh, The next thing is it informs. Uh, The gospel message is a message of realities, of truths. It informs people. It's not just a vague, unspoken concept. It also, though, demonstrates. So it's not just a message of words and facts. It is a demonstration of what it looks like when lives have been transformed by the good news. So that's where the, the saying that comes, you know, preach the gospel if necessary, use words, comes from. It was a reaction against a very head knowledge truth of the gospel and it was encouraging people to let their lives and the message work in harmony together. So I agree with that, yes. As long as you say it is always necessary to use words. And lastly, it's about what God has done. It is what God has done through Jesus, right? We're not preaching the gospel if we're not talking about Jesus. If we're not pointing people to what God has done, we're not preaching the gospel. It's not about moral reform. It's not about works-based salvation. It's about what God has done through Jesus Christ to rescue people. That's what evangelism is about. As I said, I wish we could flesh all of that out. We don't have time. What I do want us to get at, though, is what fuels this? What fuels it? What, What drives a lifestyle of effective gospel witness, or you could use the word evangelism if it doesn't freak you out too much. 
What was it that fueled the early disciples' bold lifestyle of gospel witness? And what is it that can fuel ours? So here's my first way of responding to that. The work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. The fifth book of your New Testament in front of you. The book of Acts. You can find it if you like. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. It's most commonly known as the book of Acts, right? That's what we know about. It's probably what's titled in your Bible. You might notice, though, it'd be interesting to have a look at the title page of the book of Acts in your Bible, the one that we usually flick past and look to chapter 1 or chapter 2 or whatever it is we're looking for. But have a look at the title page. What's yours called? The Acts, just called Acts, or is it called the Acts of the Apostles, right? That's its most formal name. We just call it Acts. Its actual name is the Acts of the Apostles. And that's because primarily it is a record of how the early church grew into a true movement of the gospel that started to spread right across the globe. And it does so by tracing the various ways that the early church leaders went about their ministry. So it's called the acts or the the behaviors or the actions of the apostles. However, I think it's been rightly noted by many commentators on this book that it should probably more accurately be titled The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because more than anything else, this book is a record of how God, through His Spirit, was transforming lives, was transforming cities, transforming entire people groups, and ultimately turned the entire world upside down. In fact, that's one of the um, complaints that religious leaders had about the disciples. They brought them in on one occasion, like they often did, threatened them, gave them a bit of a, you know, what I used to get when I used to go and see the principal back in the day, and sent them out of the room again, and the, the religious leaders all got together and they said, these are the people that have turned the entire world upside down. What a great thing to be said about Christians. I hope that one day, or that even right now, there might be people pointing to that big pink church up on Richo Road, and they're going, man, they're those people that are turning the whole world upside down. Bring that on. right? That'd be good, wouldn't it? But what they didn't realise, that it wasn't those people at all. God was turning the world upside down. The Spirit was changing things, right? So this is, this is a book about what God is it doing, God, what God is at work in. And this is the first essential aspect of what, or maybe we should more accurately say, who fueled effective gospel witness? Who fuels evangelism? Right? God does. The Spirit does. I think it's, it's unmistakable. As you look through, you read through the book of Acts in particular, from cover to cover, the Spirit is moving. Where the Spirit moved, lives were transformed. 
But as a way of example, maybe it can be seen most clearly in the life of the disciples when we reach even as early as Acts chapter 2. The conclusion to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, find the disciples fearful, retreating. Jesus had been crucified. All these things that they thought were going to happen, that Jesus was going to sort of overthrow things and, and bring in this big, amazing God's kingdom agenda. And they thought this is all happening and then it all seemed to unravel before their very eyes. And even though Jesus, we, we know last week when we spoke in this series, Jesus was incredibly plain. We're going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the authorities. I'm going to be beaten, mocked, crucified. He was very clear with them. But yet at the end of the Gospels, you find them in fear, hiding, retreating. Some of them just going, I don't know what to do. I'm going to go fishing again. All right? But then comes the single most defining event of human history. God not only lives among his people, he'd been doing that in the Old Testament by first having his tabernacle and then his temple situated amongst his people and there God lived among his people. He even does it through the New Testament in Jesus. God lives in the flesh, incarnate, among his people. But something was about to change. Now, God would not only live among his people, but within his people. God would not just take up residence with people, but in his people. Because at Pentecost... God took up residence in the lives of his very own children. And when God does this, miracles occur, new creations take place. Look at what happened in Acts chapter 2. Have you found it? Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. They were all there because they were in the upper room. They were fearful, we read. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Skip down to verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said... These guys have been on the Terps. And it's not even five o'clock in the afternoon yet. All right? They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And Peter, right? 
who only days prior had refused to align himself with Jesus. I do not know this man. And that was because he was scared of the servant girl. Now stands up in front of a massive multitude of people, thousands of people. Bursts open with sort of a profound declaration of the gospel. Lives are transformed. Thousands of people receive Christ. What had happened? God moved in. That's what happened. The Spirit came in. From that moment in history, from that moment, all the way through and beyond the pages of Acts, it has been God who has fueled the fires of effective gospel witness. It's true of the most earliest disciples and it is true for the current disciples. Without the Spirit, our best efforts are little more than hot air and empty vapours and good ideas. If the Spirit is not in this, then let's not bother. So who fuels effective gospel witness? Who fuels evangelism today? The Spirit does. The Spirit does. But here's the second thing that I want to talk about as being fuel for effective witness. And that is an awe-inspired wonder at God's presence. The first is that the Spirit of God is present, right? God is present. But the second thing that fuels it is this awe-inspired wonder that God is present with us. I think one of the modern-day problems within the church has been the emergence of a practical theology of the Holy Spirit that has reduced him to little more than a power supply for victorious Christian living. Right? The Holy Spirit has become our mobile battery bank. You know, your phone's getting low. I need a top-up. So I'm going to get out my little battery bank and plug it in and get a bit more, bit more juice for the journey. And somehow the Holy Spirit has been reduced often in our life either formally or just the way that we think about him as some type of power supply. And so we have heard and I've seen written phrases like tapping into the Spirit. And that's become popularised. And it carries with it the idea that he's like some sort of divine battery bank. Books have been written on the subject of unlocking the key to the spirit-filled life. As though all we need to do is find the, the right connection or the right cable, the right adapter. And then you'll be able to fully experience some secret state of Christian living. Of course, I think the problem is treating God like he's our own sort of personal power grid. Jesus didn't calm the disciples and their fears by promising them a battery bank. Right? He didn't say to them, don't worry, I'm going back to the Father, but I'm going to send you unlimited data. <laughs> what did he promise them? He promised them a companion. He promised them a comforter. 
He promised them a guide. A lifestyle of effective gospel witness is fueled by an awe-inspired wonder at God's presence. And that's why I've titled today's sermon the way I have. You will not share what you do not treasure. People always talk about what they love. You can't shut them up. And it doesn't matter what it is they love, actually. It could be a new cleaning product. You ever come across someone like that? Oh, my goodness. I tried this new grout removal. It will transform your life. All right? So it doesn't matter if it's a cleaning product. I had a friend who used to always talk about fuel additives. And the latest fuel, man, it is going to, it doubles your power, right? Halves your fuel economy. No, doubles your fuel economy. All right? They they came across something that you just add into your, your fuel tank when you fill up and it just changes your life. They're walking around like an evangelist for it, right? Or it's um, a new app for their device. Oh, wow. My life has been changed forever. Have you seen this latest app? Have you, have you changed to the latest upgrade on your phone? Right? It is amazing. If they love it, they talk about it. Or the cafe the cafe that they most recently discovered. Have you been to the cafe down on King Street? It's incredible, right? That's not true. That's just... (laughs) (laughs) What's what's true of these temporary things is also true of eternal things. You will talk about the things that you love. You don't, you don't need someone to come along and tell you the most effective strategy for telling people about that great cafe. You just don't care whether you've got the right thing to say or not. You've just had your mind blown by the incredible coffee that they serve there. And everyone out in the street, you're just going, you've got to go in there and try that. Because you, you talk about the things you love. So what are the things you talk about? Or another way of asking that is, what do you love? The story of Acts is saturated with people who talk about what they love. They talk about the things that they are beholding, the things that they are focused on, the things that are just filling their affections They were overcome by the grace of God in their life, and so they talked about it. They were astounded at his love, and so they spoke about it. They were enraptured by his kindness towards them, and so they shared it. And what does that lifestyle look like? They were willing to do anything possible, everything possible, even if it meant spending their own life 
or risking their own safety even to let as many people know as possible about this amazing grace of a God who had come near. A God who had moved within. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for a moment. Listen how Paul explains this principle to his friends who were in the city of Corinth. Paul had sometime earlier passed through Corinth. He'd lived out this lifestyle of effective gospel witness. People had been enraptured by what he was talking about and his friends. And they came to know Jesus themselves. A church had been planted there and sometime later Paul writes them a letter just to encourage them. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Paul's talking about people who don't know Jesus yet. In verse 4 he says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus Christ. Verse 6, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So in its most basic sense, this verse tells us that there is only one significant difference between unbelievers and believers. Did you see it? What was it? All right. What have they seen? Have they seen the light of the glory of Christ? Unbelievers are blind to it. Believers have seen it. They've beheld it. Right? What have they beheld? What have they looked to? Paul says they've seen the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ or their eyes are shut to it. If the book of Acts is really best described as the acts of the Holy Spirit, then I would also add that it is a record of those who had beheld him. It's a record of those who have seen him. Chapter after chapter, verse after verse, this concept, and often the actual word is used, behold, 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 all the way through it. It's a record of people who are beholding the power of God in their life. So take, for example, Paul. When we first meet him, he is a religious terrorist. He comes face to face with Jesus while en route to go and kill Christians. What was it that transforms him? Seeing the glory of Christ. All right, Acts 9. You can look it up. We won't read it now. Acts 9, 1 to 9. He is literally knocked off his donkey. All right, it's so dazzling that it blinds him. That single encounter transforms Paul. Paul had beheld the risen Jesus. His life could never be the same again. Right? The, the entire trajectory of his life is altered in that one moment. 
a lifestyle of effective gospel witness is now fueled by an awe-inspired wonder at God's presence. Much later in his life, much later in his life, he was saying goodbye to some close ministry friends and we see that this plays out. It's an insight into his life. And so turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 22. It says, Now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. This is Paul talking to his friends. Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm constrained, or some translations say compelled by the Spirit. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me or warns me that in every city, imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will ever see my face again. I want you to notice two significant realities about this little short farewell that Paul gives that I think give us sort of some sort of deep insight into that life which is fueled by awe-inspired wonder of God's presence. Verses 22, 23 and 25 all reveal the planned direction of Paul's life. Did you see it? Now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem. It's a bit like when Jesus told his disciples, hey, we're going up to Jerusalem. Paul's saying, I'm, I'm going to Jerusalem. We also know that he's going there because he's been compelled by the Spirit to go there. This is not just sort of a good idea that he came up with. It wasn't whatever was next on his list of, um, hit list of places to go to. Paul was saying, I'm going to Jerusalem. Why? Because that's where the Spirit told me to go. End of story. All right? He also says, though, he has no idea what's going to happen to him when he gets there. I'm going there. Why? Because the Spirit told me. What's going to happen? I don't know. Except, verse 23, the Holy Spirit did tell him something else. Paul says, the Holy Spirit told me, not necessarily about Jerusalem, but just, what does it say? Every city. Doesn't matter where I go. How's this for a ministry brief? All right? I want you to join my ministry. Really? What are we going to be doing? Don't really know. Except wherever we go, there's going to be imprisonments and afflictions. All right? There's a sign-up sheet in the back foyer... Verse 25, Behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. This is goodbye. I'm probably going to die. That's the planned direction for Paul's life. Second thing I want you to notice, verse 24, reveals what motivates Paul for this action. Verse 24, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, 
If only I might finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. What is that charge? What is that ministry? What is the call? To testify to the gospel, to testify to the good news of the grace of God. That is the underlying motivation. I want people to behold what I've beheld. So what about us? What about you or me? What are the primary reasons we may shrink back from a life of effective gospel witness? Or I asked a question right at the outset of our time together, what are the reasons we don't boldly and effectively live a lifestyle of gospel witness? And I've got two reasons. There's lots of different reasons, but I've got two that I want to just highlight as we close off. The first is this. Maybe we don't share because if we're honest with ourselves, we aren't actually enraptured with Jesus at all. If we don't talk about the things that we don't really love, we don't share what we don't treasure. Then we have to ask ourselves, have we laid aside our attention to beholding the glory of God in Christ? I think to be honest with ourselves, we have to ask that, right? Is it we don't share because we don't actually care that much? Have we separated ourselves from abiding in the vine? Are we walking out of step with the Spirit? Maybe we don't share because we just simply don't treasure. If that's the case this morning, if the Spirit is knocking on your heart about that, what can you do? a few suggestions. One is to take an audit. You know what an audit is? Take an audit of your treasures. What are your treasures? What, What are the things that you'd love to talk about? What are the things that you're willing to give focus to and attention to? When you have that 10 minutes free at work and you've, your mind starts wandering and you start googling your, what, what is it? that fills your affection, your heart's direction there. Take an audit of your treasures and then, very honestly, come and tell Jesus what they are. Have a conversation with Jesus about it. Jesus, I have these treasures, but I want you to be my greatest treasure at all. And it's not an easy thing to do. I don't want to just skip over this and say, oh, simple, move on to the next point. It's difficult to do. This, this involves cutting down idols at, your, at the ankle in your life, and that's, that's hard. But it's where it begins. Take an order of your treasures and then lay them at the feet of Jesus. Second thing you could do is reorder your time allocation to represent your values better. If you say that you value this but don't give it any time or any affection, then something's out of kilter. So this is a matter of actually sitting down and taking a bit of an audit of your time, maybe. 
How do I spend my time? Where do I give my time? I, I was challenged years ago to never use the term, I don't have time, when someone says to me, why didn't this happen? Or what? I, I didn't have time. That's garbage. I did have time. I just didn't want to spend the time on that. We all have exactly the same time. No more and no less. We have the time. Where are you going to put it? So reorder your time allocation to represent your values better. Here's something practical. Join a small group of other disciples to encourage them and to be encouraged by them. That's one way that you can start to learn, again, to treasure Jesus, is just get with other Christians, because it is very difficult to keep treasuring Jesus when you're walking by yourself. Here's another one. Start a regular Bible reading plan. If you don't know one, go see Marty. He's got a few for you. Download an app like Dwell on your phone. It's the most amazing app. I know. Take small steps. Don't feel like you've got to read the entire Bible in the next week or even the next year. That's a good thing to do, but just start doing it, right? Make church attendance a high priority. Okay, how about instead of saying, I'll fit church in around other things in my life, how about we start saying, I'm going to fit other things around my life, around church? Amen. Okay? Does coming to church, we know this. We know this, right? Coming to church is not going to make you a Christian. Might make you a healthier Christian, though. Just getting with other people and having your heart and your attention focused back again. This is what we treasure. I'm so forgetful. I need to be remembering this every day, every week. I need songs that are reminding me. I need words that are encouraging me. I need conversations over this to say, how's your walk with Jesus going this week? So just get here and come here and keep coming here. Or another church that loves Jesus. That's fine too. But just make it a priority. All right. So maybe it's that you just don't treasure. But maybe you do. Maybe you're sitting here this morning saying, Chris, I do treasure Jesus, though. And I I just feel the praise for him is bubbling up inside of me. And every conversation that I go into, I I, want to tell people about him. But I I don't feel like I know how to. And maybe you're shrinking back from it because you feel like you aren't equipped. Or that you don't have the skills needed or you're not sure what to do to share effectively in your life. Well, if that's you this morning, if you're sitting here thinking, Chris, that's me. I I do treasure Jesus. I just don't feel like I've got the skills necessary. What do I do? Here's the next thing that you can do. Immediately following the service, even while the last song's about to play. I think Aaron and Shell are going to be up here and maybe a couple of other people with them. But we have for you um, the next step. If that's you this morning, you want to be equipped to know how to live out this disciple, is just come and have a conversation with the people that are going to be standing here. That's your next step, just a conversation. And I'll talk to you a bit about some of the tools and, and options that we have if you're a part of this church about becoming equipped 
of gaining some skills in, in what to do with this treasure that you have within you. What do I do with it? How do I tell people about it? We'll come and have a conversation. It could start an incredible journey in your life. All right? We don't share what we don't treasure. So this is about beholding. Beholding what Jesus is doing. The fact that he is in us. It fuels a lifestyle where the Spirit is at work both in us and through us. That's what God does. You don't have to worry too much about that. God's been changing people's lives before you were here. He will be doing it long after you're gone, probably. You just need to be available. God is in me. What do I do? All right. If you need to know what you can do, if you're unsure, then come and have this conversation that we behold Jesus, that we're excited about him. And that fuels something. A movement that began at Pentecost and it will keep going and keep going and keep going until one day there will be a countless throng of people standing shoulder to shoulder in heaven and they will be singing, worthy is the Lamb. That's where their vision will be. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your love towards us, for the time that we've shared together. Lord, we come to you as a church and seek forgiveness we confess so often you are not our treasure less worthy things have been brought into our attention and we've pursued them and so lord we simply come this morning and say lord we believe but help us in our unbelief we lay them at your feet give us courage lord to identify the idols the treasures that we have And we want to cut them down and lay them down at you. We want you to be our singular treasure, our greatest prize. We want that excitement to flow out of us so that other people might know it also. We want to live an effective life of gospel witness so that many more people might behold the glory of Jesus Christ. For your sake we pray and for your glory. Amen. Don't forget to come and have a conversation with Aaron and Shelley and any of the friends that they might have with them and they'll talk to you a bit about what your next step of the journey is.